This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, I am waiting with bated breath to find out what happened at the farm this past week. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean we have no chit-chat? Oh... Yeah, no chit chat. I, I got peaches <laughs> off my peach tree finally, but well, you know I nice. read about that in the Patreon nice. post. Yeah, I, I I warred with the squirrels, and and I, the squirrels mostly won. They didn't completely win, and and I did get some peaches. I had to pick them a little early, but I was like, ha ha ha, you bleepity bleeps! I got peaches this year. So. And what did you do with the peaches? Well, right now a bunch of them are still sitting ripening on the counter. But I'm like eating my way through them. I think I picked like 50 of them, which it should have been 300. Uh, And there's still more out on the trees because the trees are all different. There's like four different trees and they each have a different variety and they ripen at a different time. And the squirrels are jerks who will go after the best, (laughs) ripest peaches, take a couple bites out of it and go, yeah, that one's not ready yet. Throw it over their shoulder and go, oh, here's another one. Let me try that one. Nope, that one's not ready yet either. And throw it over their shoulder and go take another one. And I'm just like, you know, if they would just eat a whole freaking peach, I wouldn't care so much. If they would take some from the non-ripe peaches, I wouldn't care so much. But the ones that are just almost ready for me to pick, those are the ones they eat. That's a problem. So I was like, ah, screw it. I can do this too. And I went and picked all the ones that were the biggest, closest to being ripe. And I just was like, you can ripen on the counter and I'll eat you slowly <laughs> over time. And so that's what I've been doing. <laughs> and, I, and I'm weird with fruit. I don't like it when it gets super mushy or even like I would prefer to eat an almost ripe peach than a too ripe peach. So I've already been eating the peaches. I'm with Take you. That, on, on, I'm with you there on <laughs> on fruits. Yes. So are are you going to be like an old school farm woman and like make preserves and pies and things like that? You know, I I wanted to do that with my blackberries, which I got a Ooh, whole that sounds good whole bunch. Like I got. So I'll come many to Texas to have some year. homemade blackberry pie. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I was like going to reward myself as motivation if you can finish this. And when you're done, you can go make blackberry jam, teach yourself how to do it. And, you know, because I have the, the equipment for it just as part of a already existing pressure cooker setup or whatever. And, and I have recipes and everything. And I've always wanted to learn how to do this. And you can't really mess up jams and jellies so much. Like they're not going to kill you if you do it wrong because there's so much acid in them. You don't get botulism and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, okay, I'm going to teach myself how to do this. But the thing that I needed to complete in order to reward myself with that, it's still not yet done. (laughs) So I have like gallons of blackberries sitting in my freezer, just waiting for the day that I can pull them out and boil them down. (sighs) Yeah. So peaches, probably not going to (laughs) happen. There's still blackberries in line. Yeah. And because we 
couldn't possibly do that. We do have anything that gets close to ripe, Julie will freeze it. So we've got so many frozen fruits, not vegetables, fruits in the freezer for smoothies. So that's what we do with all our excess. I'd rather have pie than a smoothie or jam. (laughs) Wouldn't we all? (laughs) Yes. So much for no chit chat today. Yeah, there we go. So you read any good books lately? That was a good, smooth lead-in. <laughs> the topic for today, I don't even know what it is, but I wanted to talk about sort of on the heels of last week's episode, we were talking about translators, and I was talking about this book I was reading that is a translated book, and it was awful, but I didn't really think the translator had anything to do with that. I wanted to tell that story and, and talk about this book that I'm reading that I do not consider to be a good book, but it has sold millions and millions and millions of copies worldwide. And it leads me into the subject of storytelling. And then I have something to branch off from that storytelling into a show I saw recently that I came away from, I really enjoyed, but came away from feeling dissatisfied because there were storytelling elements I expected and did not get. But again, this is just me. But I feel that they're, these are the types of things that are really worthy of discussion because then you can take them or leave them and keep them in mind or not in your own work as you see fit. So first off, this book that I'm reading that I think is just terrible, <laughs> it's so boring that I haven't been able to pick it back up again and continue because I am so just ugh over it. And it is the Witcher series. I really, really loved The Witcher on Netflix. I enjoyed it very much. And I had always assumed that it was based off of a game, which I have not played. But then I learned that the game was actually based off a series of just insanely well-selling books. So it's like, cool, I really enjoy fantasy type stuff. And I would like to read these books. I'm I'm fascinated by all the things that must show up in the books that did not show up in movies because books are generally so much richer and deeper. So then I went and looked at the reading order for this series. And everybody was saying, well, if you enjoyed The Witcher uh, show on Netflix, then what you want to do is start with these these short short story collections that sort of sit outside the actual saga. And they give the backstory and the history of how these characters kind of came to be. And then they are also sort of, they're the raw material for what that series, the, the, the Netflix show was based on. So I'm like, great. I'm going to start with these short stories. So I did. And if this was the raw material that Netflix was working with, and it very much was, to to create the Netflix series, then those writers deserve some massive awards because what they did with it is freaking unbelievable compared to what the raw material is. And here's my issue with what I'm reading. There's two books of short stories. I finished the first one. I did a whole heck of a lot of skipping because I just, I just couldn't. I was 
bored out of my mind. And part of this might have been because I was already familiar with the general idea of that particular short story because I'd seen what they'd done with it in film. Part of it might be because these short stories sit outside the saga itself. And I've not read the saga, and the saga could be written completely differently. It could be absolutely stunning and amazing, and I don't know because I haven't gotten that far. But the way that these short stories are told, almost the entire story is told through dialogue. Most of the scene setting, it is like the history catching you up on what you need to know done through dialogue. And it would be the equivalent of like, oh, oh, hey, hey, Witcher, come on over here. It's so nice to see you in your your fancy clothes and, and different clothes. I love that gold chain around your neck. Here, come sit with me in this high wooden back chair on this long table at my right hand. <laughs> and hey, Bard, you over there in the golden clothes, sing us a song. And you, wench with the blue apron, come over here and pour the witcher a glass of wine. No, no, not that wine. Over here, this glass by his right hand. Like all the details are told in that type of dialogue. So when the witcher, would, who's a character that I absolutely loved on screen, would would come into a situ situation, you don't really see the action. There's no action, very little real-time action. It's a lot of sitting around and talking. And in the talking, all the details sort of come out. But it's very, because of the way it's done, it's very distant. And you get these long paragraphs of dialogue, and then the witcher will ask a question, and then the dialogue will continue. And the result of the way that's done is this character that seems on screen quite intelligent and that's got way more going on inside his head than is expressed because he doesn't speak a lot, not on the page and not on the screen. But on the screen, when he does speak, it you get the impression that you're being fed very, very little of this vast amount of information that he knows. But in the books, he comes across often as knowing very little and having to be fed vast amounts of information. And so it takes this character that on screen comes across as being very smart, very skilled, and he comes across on page as very dumb. And the dialogue, when it is not these long blocks of info dumping, is kind of dumb. It, it, it feels not real. It feels cheesy. feels throwaway. And it works again to make the, the Witcher feel like <laughs> kind of a stumble bum. And then you'll have these brief, scenes, actual action, and those are crafted very, very well. But they're scattered so few and far between that it's not enough to save each entire story. And then kind of adding salt in the wounds, 
the few stories that are in these collections don't show up in the Netflix series. I'm like, I've read this story before. This is just a different version of Beauty and the Beast. I've read this story before. This is just a different version of this other fairy tale with some details changed and whatnot. But the the plot line is still there. And, and I'm seeing this, you know, and it's just it just kind of felt redundant and boring, just really, really boring. So I've got like half of a book left of those two short stories. And then I'm going to try the the main saga and and see if maybe it's better. Maybe it's better because I'm not coming to it with preconceived ideas. Maybe it's better because I already have uh, sort of a really, it's a really low barred hurdle at this point. And, and maybe I'm going to really, really enjoy them. But this is why I'm saying this was not the translator's fault. I mean, there's only so much you can do with this type of storytelling structure. And so, again, this series has sold millions and millions and millions of copies worldwide. I do not know what year it was originally written. I don't think it was like in the 60s or 70s. So that if, if it had been written that long ago, I could sort of excuse it because storytelling has evolved a lot since then. I mean, just with movies, if you if you watch a movie, even from the 80s, just the whole way that it's shot and the the way the story is told, it's dated. It, it We would never have scenes draw on as long as they do the same types of lingering silence. It's just a completely ver- different version of storytelling because storytelling evolves through the media. And so if I was like, okay, this book was written so long ago, then that would explain it. Okay, that would make sense. Or maybe because I don't read a lot in this genre, this type, this is how they, this is how it's done in that genre. Okay, fine. I, I don't know. I have then, a little, maybe, I have a little background on this. Okay. So in 1985, the author, whose name I can't pronounce, was a 38-year-old, and this is Wikipedia, 38-year-old traveling fur salesman with an economics degree and a love of fantasy literature. He decided to enter a short story competition limited to 30 pages held by a Polish science fiction magazine. He submitted The Witcher in 1986 and had to wait about a year for the results. He came in in third place. So it was 1986, 1985, 1986, is when the first of the short stories were written. Okay. So that's sort of in the same time frame that Robert Ludlum was writing all of his espionage thrillers. And they're dated, clearly dated, but they're, they're not so dated that they're not enjoyable <laughs> anymore. So I, I'm not going to say that that's, that, that it's, that's the reason. Maybe it is. Maybe there's just it's more acceptable to tell story to have that type of storytelling in that particular genre maybe i don't know i just know that for me i i was bored to tears forcing myself to get through it just to try and get to the heart of the story because there was no character in motion there was no insight we we were never inside anybody's heads we only knew what they were thinking by what came out of their mouths. The characters were held at such arm's length, and it was very talky, 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 talky. So this is why I had a problem with it. And 
I could be the only one. It's possible that some of our listeners have read it and really enjoyed it, and they think that I'm absolutely crazy for thinking that. But in the chance that others might share my sentiments, the the takeaway from this is how important character and motion it is, how important having those inner dialogue beats are so that we understand what the character is thinking and how important dialogue is to serving a purpose and how dialogue can make or break character. The words that come out of their mouth, the thoughts that they're thinking, if they do not do not sound intelligent or articulate in a, the way that the character is, you know, I don't know, at least as smart as you are, then it, it's going to be really hard to connect with them or empathize with them because they're just so distant and they're they're like stick drawings all shadows and it's really hard to become emotionally invested in what you're reading if you if there's no emotion involved at all and it these books took characters that i loved and made me hate them it <laughs> took a story that i loved and made me feel like i don't have anything to do with this anymore Again, could just be me. I'm a very picky. My problem, but it's worth taking into account in terms of what can we take from this in our own storytelling experience for for us as storytellers. How can we learn from this? If if something like this is bothering you as a reader, to sit down and analyze what's not working so that at least you don't do the same thing in your own writing. And you will connect with readers who are of like mind, right? There may be a whole bunch of readers who enjoy other storytelling styles and aren't going to get yours, and that's okay. But what you're doing is going, hey, this doesn't sit right with me, but why? What is it that's not working for me? And then using that as a learning experience to go, okay, I do not want to do that in my own work, and and here's exactly what's happening, and I'm going to take this under advisement, right? That's basically what this is. But it, it also brings to mind, because we're ta- it, it really is a storytelling issue. It's not a writing issue. The words on the page were fine. You know, he's a good writer. It's structure. And it, it reminds me a little bit, not the same at all, of a very popular show that I just watched. And I really enjoyed it. But it... I came away from it feeling very disappointed, not so disappointed that I was bored or disappointed that I wouldn't watch the second season or anything like that. But I felt that there was somewhere along the way there was a miss. And again, (laughs) far be it from me to say that I know better than those who wrote the story, because this there's a lot of money and a lot of really smart writers behind this and i am talking about the disney show loki which i loved it it was fantastic it was fantastic storytelling and creativity and is just so much good to say about it that i enjoyed just the character interactions the ideas brilliant except for one thing, and it's this. Loki is one of my 
favorite Marvel characters of all the Marvel recent Marvel movies. Like I did not read the comics. I don't have any of the backstory just from the Marvel movies that have come out in the last however 10, 15 years. I really love Loki. He's highly entertaining to me and it's his, his creativity, his doesn't give a crap about things. And he's always looking for his angle. Right. But, and, and he's just funny. I enjoy him. I enjoy that he's the actor who plays him. But in all of these movies, Loki is not the star, right? So his his stories interweave with many other stories, and he his actions do drive the plots. But he is the god of of destructive, just like mischief, right? And so when he's up to no good and he's lying and he's faking and he's cheating and doing all the things that Loki does, you know he's going to be thwarted because he is not the star of these Avenger stories. He is just, he's a plot device. He's, he's an antagonist, a very funny, enjoyable antagonist. But when he is the namesake of his own show, he is now the center. He is the star. And for those of you who've not seen this, the, the Loki series, I'm going to give you a basic rundown on what it is, hopefully with no spoilers. You can sort of pick it up from just watching the previews. Is that in this universe, there is a single timeline. And when a character, a person, does something that violates the timeline, it sort of creates a branch, sort of like a, a thread off of it. And when that happens, there is an agency that, that controls the time that will take that character, they call them a variant, because they're a variant from the, the, the main timeline, and they will prune them. They prune these variant timelines to keep just this single constant timeline so it doesn't spread out into chaos. And in one of the Avenger movies, Loki does something that creates a branch off the timeline and he becomes a variant. And so he gets captured and brought to the TVA and they're going to prune him, which means basically dead him. And the person responsible for his case files or whatever decides that they want to use Loki to catch another variant that has been causing a lot of chaos and a lot of branching timelines and problems. And it's another Loki variant. Apparently there are many Loki variants and they need a Loki to catch a Loki. And that's kind of the plot line. And it's fantastic. Where... I felt empty in it is that our Loki, the Loki I know and love, was always playing catch up to everybody else. He did his little tricks and his things, but he was really somewhat the underdog in this entire story. And I kept waiting for him to do something really smart, to, do, to be Loki, to be clever. 
And he goes through a character arc that is wonderful. His character grows and changes, and it's wonderful. But never in a way that lets you feel that he is the smart one or that he is going to win. He, the story happens to him. He doesn't happen to the story. And I felt cheated because everything that I love about Loki, the character, I never got to see it. I never got to see it fulfilled. I got to see little glimpses of it here and there, but he wasn't the smart one. He wasn't really the main Loki when you think about it. He was a Loki, but he wasn't the Loki. And and it worked to an extent, except I just kept waiting. When is he going to be the one who comes up with the ideas? When is he going to be the one who is creative? When is he going to be the one who uses his mischief to wreak havoc and come out on the upside? But it never happens, in my opinion. And And so I felt like I didn't get what I wanted. I loved every other part of it. But I felt like he was just a bit player in a story that I was led to believe was about him. And so how that could have been changed, I don't think it would have taken a lot, but maybe it would have altered the course of the story and taken it in a direction that the writers didn't want to go. I mean, obviously, there's going to be a season two and everything like that. But it, it got me thinking about storytelling our stories like as writers there are there are expectations that readers come into because they they that's what genre that's where genre comes into the the equation and the the comps if you like so and so you'll like so and so people come into a reading experience for the experience and their expectations are hoping for a, they want to ride a specific ride, so to speak. They know that they like this type of ride and they're hoping that you're going to give that to them. So if you're an author that has already given readers that experience and then you switch it up and you deny them that, they're going to come away empty. If you set the expectations of a story being one thing and then you do a bait and switch halfway through the middle, you might think that you're being very clever and the audience, half your audience, maybe is going to come away thinking, yeah, that didn't work for me because that wasn't what I thought I was going to get. And so there's this give and take, I guess, as, as an author, where you want to do what's new. You want to keep things fresh. You don't want to keep writing the same story over and over with just different names or whatever. But you also want to deliver on the expectations that readers are coming into this story with, which is why I worked so freaking hard when the Liars books were coming out to keep reminding readers, this is not just Monroe in another body. You're not getting Monroe, no matter how much you want Monroe, no matter how much you think that you're getting Monroe in these coming books, you're not, please do not go into it expecting that. Because if somebody went into those books expecting Monroe, they're going to be completely disappointed because expectations set the experience. So as an author, you you got to ask yourself, what expectations are readers going to have in this type of book? If, if, I, if the genre calls for these specific expectations, then I need to deliver on those expectations. If, my, if I'm writing a character who is supposed to be smart and witty and capable, then I better not 
put that character in situations that make them look dumb and playing catch up to everyone around them, because that's just going to be disappointing to the expectations that are set up. So I may have come into the Loki series with the wrong set of expectations. I'm not saying that they did it wrong. I'm not saying that they should have written that series according to what I think they should have written it. It's just that I personally was disappointed because I didn't get what I wanted, which is my Loki, the Loki that is so awesome and enjoyable for me to see on screen. Got it to an extent, just not ever to the point of where he met those expectations. So same with the Witcher book that I was reading. I came into those those books expecting a character that I could respect and who would be smart and clever and sure, he might be the strong and silent type, but when he does speak, he's going to have something intelligent to say. And I got none of that. So I came away from it hugely disappointed because the expectations weren't met. So I guess if I had something to tie it all together, I would say that this is a meeting expectations discussion of of what happens when you fail to meet readers' expectations and to understand what the expectations are in what it is that you're writing and making an effort to try and meet them. And in each case, this is, it's kind of interesting the way you wrap this up. In each case, this was, you had seen one version of something and you were getting another version of something in, in reality, another version you you'd seen the Netflix series for the witchers and then you went to the book and, and in your mind, that was a completely different thing and it didn't deliver on the expectations that you expected based on this other thing and the same thing with with the loki series where loki was a bit player in the avengers i think in in various movies he was one way but then when he got into his own series he was a slightly different way and that caused you to be disappointed oh yeah that's that's a Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you, you, we always think of things the other way. I mean, the opposite way. And, you know, we read the books and, and you alluded to this uh, a couple of weeks ago where you read the book and then you see the movie and you go, oh, you know, that it wasn't what I was expecting for, you know, whatever reason, because we create That's these... usually, yeah. Yeah. Usually in, the, the, in case case, the, the, the exact book is opposite. so much better. Yes. Yes, and it's rare, but it does happen that sometimes the visual version is so much better than the written version. And that's, I'm I'm nervous about picking up a book of something that I've seen on screen because there have been several times where the written version just didn't even live up to it. And I did a, I think we discussed this at one point, and, and I did a Facebook post about it, uh, that okay, so you have the Jason Bourne books, right? And the movies are good, but the books just have so much more in them, right? So that's the, your classic example of the book being better than the movie, and that that's like ninety eight percent of the time that's the way it is. But when it came to Neil Gaiman's Stardust, the book didn't come close to the movie, and The November Man, which you and I have talked about before, book did not. I mean, book was so. <laughs> not close to the movie so now when i see something on film that i'm like oh my god i've got to see how the writer crafted this to make it so amazing 
I immediately go, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good idea. But I thought with The Witcher, surely, surely the books will at least get close. And I was just very wrong. Interesting. And, and to be sure that we bring in every possible media, because we've talked about games, we've talked about movies, we've talked about books. I listened to an audio book earlier this week, and this relates very specifically to the conversation we had about The Witchers. I listened to an audio book by, let's just say, a very well-known author. And this was a it was one of those things they do on Audible where if you're a subscriber, they give you your pick of these two or three really cool kind of different things, and there's no additional cost for downloading and listening. And so when I saw this particular author and it was a multicast production, I thought this is going to be incredible. I was really excited about it. So I queued it up, started out on a walk, and started it. And it was dialogue. And that was it. There was, I didn't, I didn't go beyond 10 minutes, but for the first 10 minutes, there were two different scenes, at least I think it was two different scenes, where there was nothing but dialogue. There was nothing that identified who the people were, where they were. You know, it's the whole, the whole grounding the reader thing. Disembodied voices. Disembo yeah. Everything was a disembodied <laughs> voice. And just when I was starting to think, okay, I think maybe I understand what's going on here. They did a scene change with no way of notifying you that there was a scene change because it's just the same people talking. They were just, time had passed. And so I didn't know if they were in a car, they were at a crime scene or whatever. And I listened to 10 minutes and I just shut it off and thought, this is like the greatest example ever of how not to open something as, as a writer <laughs> Because the, the reader, or in this case, the listener, is so ungrounded that after 10 minutes, I still didn't have a clue what was going on. If they had done what you said they did in The Witcher, it would have been better for me. Because then I would have known, someone could have said, look how tall I am sitting in this short chair. And then I would have known there was right. a chair and a tall person in the room. But I didn't know yeah, even no, that. I... Wow. So I guess the takeaway from that is violate the core crafting rules at your own risk. And one of those core crafting rules is the reader always needs to know where your character is, character's body is in time, space, or place. And they need to know who's speaking. So if you're a really, really wealthy, famous writer, you can probably get away with violating those rules <laughs> a little easier <laughs> than the rest of us peons. But you still do it at your own risk. Yes. So that was interesting. Interesting combination of discussion topics today. So anyway, that is it for our show where we've just hit every possible media, I think, that you, where you could consume a story. And uh, so thank you guys for listening. We will be back again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here. See you next week. <laughs>